0: Hello everyone and welcome to British Murders, the podcast that focuses exclusively on British murder cases with an occasional glimpse at horror movies. I'm your host Stuart Blues and this week I am joined by an incredibly special guest. He is a forensic pathologist who has performed over 23,000 post-mortem examinations in his career including some of the most high-profile cases of recent times. You might recognize him from several true crime documentaries including Autopsy, The Last Hours Of, Death Detective and Real Crime. He's also a best-selling author, an experienced senior lecturer and professor, an avid apiarist, I hope I'm saying that right, and an avid aviator who has held his private pilot license since 2004. He is jack-of-all-trades, master of, I'm sure, more than one. Please welcome to the show, Dr. Richard Shepard.
1: Hello, Stuart. How nice of you to invite me to join you.
0: Oh, you're more than welcome. It took me a fair while to go through your whole website to get every facet of your achievements, your accomplishments, your hobbies, your career. You've got quite a lot of plates spinning there from what I could see.
1: Well, yes, but retirement, fortunately, I'm not having to spin quite as many so I can enjoy the apiary and aviation uh, a little bit more.
0: We will come to those later because I was fascinated to find out that you're intrigued in both of those things on your website. What we are gonna do before we get into the nitty-gritty of your background, your career, as it were, is we're gonna break the ice a little bit with like a theological question, I like to say. What I'd like to know, in your opinion, what do you think happens to us as humans after we die?
1: Ooh. Now. <laughs> okay, so we're starting with the easy questions then, so it. it gets harder uh, from here. <laughs> right. I don't know is the answer to that. I have no strong religious convictions, not attached to any particular religion, but I'm always struck by the fact that religion is such a powerful force throughout the world and throughout all communities. I enjoy the um, conventions of Church of England services, but when someone dies, I've seen 23,000 odd people who have died, and each time I've wondered, I wonder where they are now. Uh, A very good friend of mine, uh, Sue Black, the anthropologist, says she wants to be awake when she dies because she thinks it's going to be the next huge adventure. And I think I'm going to buy into that. I don't know where we go, but when it happens, it's going to be such an adventure.
0: Do you think there's a fear of there being nothing? Because in my opinion, I'm not religious at all. I wouldn't necessarily say I'm an atheist, I'm more agnostic I, I I'll believe it when I see it kind of thing, yeah, but do you think religion as a whole, it goes back thousands of years of course, has been fabricated by humans because of that fear of the potential of being nothing after death
1: gosh i I, I simply don't know, but what I do know is every night I climb into bed and I shut my eyes and I go to sleep, whether I wake up in the morning is a different matter, but that transition from awake to asleep isn't scary isn't distressing, isn't unpleasant. Uh, And I assume, I hope, having witnessed it when I was working as a clinical doctor and seen so many people in so many circumstances who have died, I hope that the transition, howsoever it actually is caused, and I've seen people dying after accidents, I've seen people dying of cancer, I've seen people dying of heart disease, all sorts of things, The transition always seems to be fundamentally, at the end, a quiet moving on. Uh, And I hope that that is what's going to happen. Whether there's anything after, as I say, I simply don't know. But if if I go and find out, I'll I'll come back and join you again uh, over some sort of sub-Ethernet and let you know.
0: If you do have the secrets to what happens next, I think this is the show to spill the (laughs) beans on.
1: You're definitely top of the list, Stuart.
0: (laughs) Excellent. So let's have a a discussion about, well, your background, really, your early life. You went on to be a forensic pathologist. as lots of other things will come on to. As a kid, though, what were your aspirations? What did you want to be?
1: Initially, I knew that I wanted to study sciences so I'm sort of looking back now to the start of my secondary education the sciences were what interested me probably because they what I felt I could do languages were always a struggle uh, mathematics I could just about struggle with but the sciences are what interested me uh, and then there was one day at school when I was about 13 or 14 a friend of mine brought a forensic textbook that he'd stolen off the shelf his father was a gp and it must have been one of his dad's textbooks when he was at uh, university. Anyway, he brought it in, a book full of pictures of murders and wounds and injuries and deaths. Uh, And most of my friends in my class were quite disgusted by this, but I was completely fascinated by this insight into a world that I simply didn't know existed and that there were doctors who would help the police solve crimes and convict the guilty. And that was me sold. That then set my life up through o levels as they were then gcse's and a levels and university to go on to become a forensic pathologist
0: so what areas of study did you choose at college and uni
1: well sciences so maths maths physics chemistry uh, we we did a, a peculiar joint maths and physics uh, A-level. And I, I can't quite remember what it was, but it was a sort of a, a mixture of the two that scored two A-level points. And then from there, straight into university to study medicine. I, I should say for those those that are might listen to this, in their revision period up to A-levels, I got into medical school uh, on two Cs a D, D and an E. And I don't think you can do that anymore. But that <laughs> might say more about my educational abilities and my ability to duck the system than anything else.
0: I mean, you you did all right considering those grades, didn't you?
1: Well, yes. I mean, I I would say there's massive grade inflation, but I have to be careful because I now have nieces and nephews who are A, taller than me, and B, doing their A levels (laughs) at the moment. But yeah, I mean, it is interesting. I think, you know, these are markers for educational achievements. I know lots of people who didn't achieve uh, as well as I, who are now masters of science and Commerce and uh, whatever, so it's it's a marker in life, and I don't think anyone should feel that it is the be all and end all. I was lucky; I slipped through, but uh, and achieved what I wanted to. But I don't think anyone should be disheartened if they don't get straight A pluses every time they sit an exam. Do
0: you think there's too much emphasis on achieving good grades and finishing school?
1: I do think so. I mean, it, it seems to me now that schools are focused on getting the grades and passing the exams rather than on education. And it's difficult because I'm now officially in the old codger class, but it does seem to me that there's little about things peripheral, music and art and literature and learning about science for the fun of it rather than just to pass an exam. So I I think there's always that risk. Uh, Perhaps the educationalists will tell me I'm wrong, but uh, I'd say looking... My children are now well past this stage, but my nieces and nephews are in it. And I do wonder, I have to say.
0: It's a good point regarding learning to pass an exam rather than learning something for the fun of it, for the enjoyment, for potentially a career. I think there's a distinct lack. You'll know more about the current system than I I imagine, but a lack of stuff involving life skills, you know, to do with, finance, how to run a home, how to look yep. after children, all that kind of stuff. It, it, I've never used, in my opinion, Pythagoras' theorem to this day, and I work <laughs> for a bank. So that says a lot about, we were always promised that you won't have a calculator in your pocket when you're older. Well, actually, we yep. do.
1: Well, that, that's right. That's, uh, my bank account is never the sum of the squares. It's always the sum of the debits. Some. <laughs>
0: <laughs> exactly. So, so you're college, went to university, started studying medicine, Qualified, I believe, nineteen seventy seven. I found in yes. an article.
1: Gosh, that's a long time ago, isn't it? Nineteen seventy seven.
0: Goodness me. Not to rub it in, but that is that is a while ago, Richard.
1: Yeah, well, you're you're the mathematician, so I'll leave.
0: Oh <laughs> no, it was before I was born. Not born <laughs> yeah. yeah this... So you, you did your training at St George's Hospital, which yes, is at right. Hyde Park Corner. So, what was your what did your training consist of?
1: Well, it was the standard clinical medical training. We, we spend. Now it's two years, then it was 18 months, learning about the sciences, about biochemistry and physiology, all the laboratory stuff. And then you go off and you start in your clinical training, which I did at Hyde Park Corner, you start seeing patients uh, and talking to them and diagnosing their diseases and learning how to treat them. So that, it, was, it was that. It was a wonderful hospital because it was small. Um, there were only, I think, less than 100 students in all three clinical years. So it was really nice. Uh, at that point, point. and so lots to see, lots to do, lots to learn. Nice consultants, uh, you know. It was it was a great time of my life, and I was I used to live at number one Knightsbridge. So what could be wrong with that?
0: Not bad. That's a bit of a flex. Yeah, that is great. <laughs> so you, is that sort of training you mentioned? You were actually you started off as a GP, is that right? No, no. Uh, the, the training the training goes
1: through, and you learn about everything. You do all your final exams, uh, and then you go off and you become. Uh, a houseman. uh, Now we did one year and I spent a year working in medicine, which is respiratory medicine, cardiac medicine, diabetes, things of that sort. And then six months of that was done learning to do surgery. The second half, I knew I was always going to progress as quickly as I could to pathology because that's the, the step of the training I needed to get into. There wasn't a post immediately. So I went off and delivered babies for three months, which was great fun. Wow. And then, as soon as a pathology training post became available, I s- slid into that uh, and started my career learning to be a pathologist and then a
0: forensic pathologist. How long's the training to become a pathologist?
1: Well, uh, all branches of medicine, give or take, it's about five years you commit to whether you're going to become a GP or a radiologist or a forensic pathologist. I took a little longer, um, not quite sure why. Uh, <laughs> couple of hiccups with a couple of exams en route. So I took about sort of six and a half years to get all my training completed. So I I think I did work it out once from between walking through the door at medical school on my first day to walking out as a doctor was about 14 or 15 years.
0: Okay. Lots of experience gained throughout that time. Though. Yes,
1: I mean, and that's that. Hopefully, is what you expect from your doctor when he's <laughs> they're qualified. They they know quite a lot, and they've had the experience and can use it. So that's it's it's not unusual. It's not special. It's just the way the systems work wherever you go in medicine.
0: You got your postgraduate training was completed in 1987. That's right. So that we're getting closer to when I was born. Yes. <laughs> Spoiler alert! That was 1989, and then it said you you joined what was then, which indicates it's changed now. The elite forensic department at Guy's Hospital. Yes,
1: yeah. So, that's right. so yeah.
0: what does that consist of? What's the elite forensic department?
1: Well, the there were forensic departments in all of the medical schools in London at that time, but the forensic department at Guy was run by a man called Ian West, who was young, very dynamic. Very actively involved in lots of different spheres of forensic medicine. And that department was just at that time, uh, you know, the, sort of the up and coming dynamic department with lots going on. Work, because it was dynamic, was coming into the department investigating murders all over the UK and all over the world, really. So it was a great place to start my career. And Ian was a fantastic teacher.
0: Do you remember your first examination? As in the first one that you led,
1: yes <laughs> well in a sense there's two one was in my training my, the first post mortem I ever did was a way way back before I got this job at Guy's. This was way, soon after I'd stopped delivering babies i I went off to do this work at my training in pathology at St George's now that was really having watched lots of post mortems you know to do my, do one myself was really quite scary to do it. For the first time, to put a scalpel on a human and do that sort of examination was quite a step forward. But also for me, I knew that I, in a sense, I had to be able to do it because this was my career path. And if I couldn't do it, then my career path was going to have to make a radical change. So I was <laughs> didn't sleep much the night before, spent a lot of time reading, examining, understanding. And with the help of my colleagues at the time got through a postpartum on someone who died a perfectly natural death there was nothing unusual or suspicious about it so that's the first time I ever did a case like that and the first homicide case uh, that I dealt with I can remember as well which was a man who'd been beaten to death in a block of flats up in North London with an
0: ashtray. Wow so is it a case of every death has a post-mortem then it's not just ones that are suspicious or in regard in a murder case
1: no i i think it's well well less than 50 percent of cases well less than 50 percent of cases most of the time doctors know why their patients have died uh and they will complete and sign a death certificate detailing a natural cause of death and that's as far then as the law is concerned the law in the shape of Her Majesty's coroner becomes, certainly in England and Wales, it's, it's different north of the border. The same, similar process, but the person there is called the procurator fiscal. But England and Wales, there's a coroner covering every part of the United Kingdom. Uh, and if the death isn't natural, been due to an accident or uh, it's been due to a possible murder or it's suspicious or the g p or the doctor treating the person doesn't know why they've died. then the coroner may ask for a postmortem to be performed and there's two levels: one is what we would call routine i mean it's never a death is never routine for the family, but for us, these cases were without suspicion. A full examination is performed by a qualified pathologist, not a forensic pathologist, and hopefully the cause of death is established either then or as a result of maybe toxicology, looking for drugs or something of that sort. But there's no suggestion that anyone else has caused the death. And then there are the more suspicious deaths that are dealt with by the home office pathologist, the forensic pathologist, where there is a suspicion that someone else may have been involved either directly or indirectly with the death. And there's sort of different gradations and skills needed for both examinations.
0: Can a family request a post-mortem if they're not happy with the diagnosis? Um, If they're not happy with the
1: clinical diagnosis or or the the diagnosis of the first post-mortem, do you see what I
0: mean? Yeah. Uh, So let's say, for example, a relative dies. Yeah. The doctor's happy that it's not suspicious. They've put the the cause of death as whatever it may be in their opinion. The family's thinking, "Mm, I'm not happy with that. I think there's some foul play there in that circumstance, let's say.
1: Yes, there's two routes they can take. Hopefully they can make their views clear to the coroner uh, and the coroner would pick up on their concerns and he or she would then take over the case and order a post-mortem examination. Sometimes, though, the coroner will say, no, I'm quite content that the doctor is correct. I'm not going to do this. And and then sometimes a family can ask for a post-mortem to be performed privately and they would have to approach a solicitor, and the solicitor would have to approach a pathologist to to get that done. There's no immediate way of doing it if the coroner refuses. But coroners will normally listen to what people's concerns, and if they're reasonable concerns, then they will normally order a postmortem paid for by the state and organised by them.
0: What's the protocol around a postmortem, and is it different for a more natural less suspicious death versus say a murder
1: oh yes different people will perform the examination so when it's a, a potential murder and we we use the term suspicious death so you know sometimes they turn out to be entirely natural sometimes they don't but that's the term we use if it's a suspicious death and what's called a home office pathologist performs examination these are people with Additional training, additional skills, and to be honest, additional layers of suspicion. You know, we, we're trained to, to doubt, to be able to collect evidence, to worry. Uh, and we've seen many more different types of cases than the hospital pathologist who would perform the post mortem when it's probably a natural death, but not no one's quite sure what, someone's died suddenly, or maybe a road traffic accident, or maybe a drug overdose, or maybe a suicide, they will deal with the vast majority of those natural and unnatural deaths that aren't suspicious. But there are different layers of skill, different layers of knowledge, and different layers of experience. And sometimes cases will slip through when there is no suspicion expressed by the police or the coroner. Cases may be called natural Uh, When, in fact, further examination, perhaps at a later point by a home office pathologist, will establish that there there are worrying features, things that uh, the first pathologist didn't appreciate were significant.
0: So when you're going through an examination, and so the body's come in and they've said, this is why we think the death has occurred, or this is basically what's happened, we just need confirmation of it. Yeah. Do you hone in on what that potential theory is, or do you have a fresh checklist from A to Z, this is the routine, we'll look at this first, we'll look at this second, and then if we get to that, we get to that, or do you just focus on that one aspect of it?
1: No, I, I think we, as I said, we are, we are. I think we must be born suspicious. Uh, you know, <laughs> we hear all, see all, uh, and say now, I think is the the expression. <laughs> that we We listen to everything we're told of course we do because the the police are investigating it the coroner's officers are investigating it they're they're trying to get as much evidence as they can to feed into us but you know if if someone tells me something i will make a note of it and i will be aware of it but i will approach every case with an open mind and look at it in a structured way and normally it's a pretty prepared Format that we deal with it simply because that is the easiest and the best way of doing post mortem examinations and it covers everything. It really does cover everything. So somebody might say to me, oh, he's been stabbed in the chest. Fine. Okay. Well, I'll I'll certainly look at any stab wounds I find on the chest and decide what's going on. But I will also look at the brain and I'll also look at the feet and I'll also look at the the toenails and I'll also look at the, the back passage to see whether anything else has been going on. So all of these things are part of our examination. Although some people might say, well, what are you bothering to look at that for? He's obviously been stabbed. The answer is we look at everything we always look examine and document everything in every case
0: what's the average length of time it takes to complete one
1: uh it, it's very it's very very difficult because it if someone someone has 30 stab wounds it makes it a very long postmortem examination because each one has to be measured documented, photographed, the track of the wound has to be explored and examined. So they can be very long. But generally speaking, they are going to be in the region of five to six hours. It's a full, full day's work to perform even the most straightforward examination. This is to say, we look at everything. Even if it's said to be straightforward, you never can tell.
0: Do you do it alone? Or do you have assistance with you? or?
1: Well, I'll have my, the mortuary staff, the anatomical pathology technicians will be there. Usually one or two will be assisting. Then I'll have a police photographer who will obviously be taking photographs uh, as, as and when I request them of the, the injuries and document them on a camera, digital images now. Uh, we'll also have an exhibits officer to whom if I take a sample of hair or toenails or I take a swab, I hand it to them and they will then process it properly and correctly to keep the evidence neat and clean and tidy. Uh, there's usually also an investigating officer present as well and maybe one or two, two others. So I'm part of a team and although when I'm in the mortuary, perhaps, perhaps I'm the one that is running it, uh, I'm also there listening because these people have immense experience too. And they're also, while we're working, they will still be receiving extra information that they'll be feeding back to me that I will be building into my understanding of the events surrounding that person's death. So we're working as a team. Um, You know, when we go elsewhere, if we go to the police station, then the police are in the driving seat. When we go to the laboratory looking for toxicology, the toxicologists are in the driving seat. But where I'm doing my examination, of course, I tend to be the one that's running the show at that point, but listening. To what other people are saying
0: okay are you able to give me a high level overview of the the steps you would take from so the body's on the on the slab or whatever you call it forgive me if (laughs) technology is wrong (laughs) we prefer table table (laughs) then okay uh, so the body's at the table from the first incision on a high level, obviously, it's five hours. We don't have time to go through every little step you would go through and document. But what order would you go through things typically in a post mortem?
1: Right. A post mortem, generally, unless there's a reason to alter this, incisions will be made uh, and the skin will be reflected. That is, it will be dissected off the chest wall uh, and off the abdomen. All the time looking for injuries, looking for abnormalities, looking for diseases. Then the front of the chest wall will be cut through, removing the sternum, the breast, the breastbone, and that will expose then the lungs and the heart underneath. We'll be looking at the neck uh, from the tongue through the upper airways and the esophagus past the larynx, obviously looking to see whether someone's been strangled or injured in the neck the airways down into the lungs, the main blood vessels and the heart in the body down into the abdomen, stomach, have they been poisoned? We'll take a sample of that. We'll look at the liver, given that alcohol is a very common associated finding uh, in uh, murders, both in the victims and in the assailants. Look at the bowel, look at the kidneys, look at all of the organs in the abdomen, and all of those organs are taken out of the body and examined carefully. In detail and samples are taken for toxicology samples are taken to look at under the microscope and say at every stage we are looking at and considering the possibility of injury and of disease and I often say pathology is quite significantly uh, a process of feel as well as look um you know and quite often i will sense as i'm examining these organs that there's a lump or a bump or an absence or something that's strange because i've done I, my my fingers tell me an awful lot and can sometimes lead the investigation once we've done that we will then look at the head we'll look for injuries the scalp is then uh, reflected taken off folded back from the skull the skull's cut through and the brain is removed Uh, and examined, once again, looking for evidence of bleeding, of injuries, skull fractures, damage, natural disease to the brain. And all this is done. I mean, when I describe it, even at this high level, it sounds awfully destructive, but it's not. It's done with care and and with concern as well, but in such a way that the body can actually be put back together so that The relatives can view it without necessarily being confronted by the evidence of the incisions that I have made. And all of the organs are returned to the body. If if for any reason we keep any for further tests, then the families are always informed what organs, what tissues we've retained. So it's done with great care and concern so that the families are not distressed when they come, hopefully, to view their relative.
0: How accurately do TV shows and movies represent the process?
1: Uh, I did a little a little thing for my publisher, Penguin, about they gave me some clips from various movies to look at and uh, everything from um, Silent Witness through to House through to a, a number of other ones. And I would have to say that they don't get it right in any way, shape, <laughs> or form. <laughs> I mean, they, they're... A number of them, to be honest, were utterly laughable. The first film they showed me was an extract for, of S- Agent Sparrow, the FBI agent, doing a post-mortem in Silence of the Lambs. So she's a, here's a cop doing a post-mortem. Okay, this is a good start. And then someone says to me, you know, you've got really beautiful eyes. And I would have to say that despite 23,000 post-mortems and lots of opportunity, nobody has ever said that to me in a post-mortem room. <laughs> I sort of feel you know, my life has got a gap in it, but never mind. There we are.
0: Oh, well. Have you had any spooky occurrences when you're doing one, like lights going <laughs> no. off or doors closing? No, nothing like that. no,
1: nothing nothing spooky, I'm afraid. I'm, I'm very resistant. My family are convinced we have ghosts in the house, and I'm absolutely convinced we don't. Uh, so maybe I'm just, just not receptive to these things.
0: Maybe, maybe. So I was going to ask you because at the start I mentioned that you've been involved in some of the more recent notorious tragedies as far as the past couple of decades it mentions that you had some involvement with regards to the Hungerford uh, Hungerford massacre should I say I say involvement to be clear this is uh clinically so this was a shooting spree in Hungerford in August I believe 1987 yeah the the perpetrator yeah. was a, a Michael Ryan shot dead a number of people using using guns. What was your involvement with regards to that particular case?
1: I was the, I had really just been appointed by then at Guy's for a couple of years, I suppose. Uh, and I was the, my boss, Ian West, had gone away on holiday uh, and I was the pathologist on call. And at that time we covered everything. We covered up to Oxford and Banbury in the north, down to the south coast, out the west to Hungerford, among other places. So we covered a huge geographical area of the United Kingdom on call for the police to deal with cases such as this. So as the on-call pathologist, well, actually as the only pathologist at that point, because Ian was away, uh, I got the call to say that they had, I think the phraseology they use is, we've got a bit of an incident out in Hungerford. Typical police uh, downplaying things. He'd murdered 13 people, um, killed Injured another thirteen, and, and then shot himself. I have to say that the significance of this was because, if I got it right, you weren't even born then. Right? Was it nineteen eighty nine? You were born.
0: Yeah. So this is yeah. A so, years see, I, and I
1: have to say, people go, "Well, I don't know, don't know about Hunkford." We have to think of the the recent shootings in Buffalo in America, and the school shootings in America that we now sadly hear so often. These so-called spree shootings where someone with a gun goes off and kills a lot of people at one time. They're different from serial killers who kill one person at a time over a long period. So these are spree killings. We'd never had one in the United Kingdom. It, it, It had never, ever happened before. And then this man called Michael Ryan, for whatever reason, in this tiny little sleepy town of Hungerford out in Berkshire, suddenly went off and killed all these people and i was the pathologist involved and i went out to the town that night to examine michael ryan as he sat in this school classroom a school that he'd actually attended uh, and he'd retreated there obviously as police began to close in on him he'd retreated to an upstairs classroom and they i was called to the scene because the police he told the police at one point he had a bomb strapped to his body. And if they moved him, it would, it would go up. So the police wanted someone to go in and confirm that he had actually shot himself, rather than being shot because the rumours were the SAS had come in and they'd used a, a, a sniper to kill him. And the police were very keen to establish that wasn't the case. Uh, and so they wanted someone to go and examine him in the classroom with this bomb. So uh <laughs> they said yeah, we 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 don't if we move him doc and he blows up we really want to be sure what's going on so I was sent, <laughs> I was sent in on my own into this classroom to examine this guy just to check that he had actually shot himself and that was a very uh you know bit of a bit of a scary experience walking across a room to a man who was immobile but had a gun in his lap pointing across the room to me uh, and but i was able to establish that he had shot himself uh, and then the next 2 or 3 days we performed postmortems on him and on all the other victims uh, of that particular massacre
0: is there any kind of conscience shift when you're doing a postmortem on a victim of a shooting or a murder such as that versus doing one on an actual perpetrator
1: uh, no i don't think so i've i've often asked myself because i've i've seen Over my career, I've seen a number of people who, for one reason or another, have died soon after committing awful murders. When I perform a post mortem, I have to move into professional mode because I'm an evidence gatherer, I'm an evidence documenter, I'm performing processes that are so important for the criminal justice system and for the coronial system, because at some point in the future, someone is going to ask me, well, where was that injury? What sort of injury was it? How big was it? What was it caused by? I can't at any point allow my sadness for the victims or my anger at a perpetrator to get in the way of my doing the best job that I possibly can whenever I perform a post-mortem, I'm, you know, even forgetting the need to respect and give a decent response to a dead person. I have to work for those things, and I have to switch off those personal sensations uh, and get on with my job and do it to the best of my ability.
0: What sort of preparation do you have to put in when you know you're going to be summoned to court as a, you know, well, a medical witness, I suppose?
1: It depends very much, actually, Stuart, on on the case itself. A long time ago, now I performed a post mortem examination on a, on a lady who had been suffocated by uh, the Metropolitan Police and the Customs and Excise trying to deport her. And this lady was technically an illegal immigrant, uh, and the police attended with Customs and Excise, and they wound a length of tape. Around this lady's head, and they suffocated her to death. And police officers were prosecuted for her manslaughter. And that was a highly complex, highly difficult case, as was the case of Stephen Lawrence, as were a number of other cases. And the preparation for those is intense and quite prolonged to be sure that you can give the accurate evidence to the court. And that's the role of the pathologist. I'm not there to convict. I'm not there to just stick to what I've been told because further evidence has been gained, no doubt, in in the investigation that continued after my post-mortem. So I'm there to give the best evidence I can to the court, and it can involve (laughs) learning most of the information in two or three A4 ring binders so that I can quick, accurate, and precise when I'm talking to the jury, because the jury are the people I need to get to understand what's going on. Not the barristers, you know, they're they're playing legal games usually. It's the jury. They have to understand, and they will have no prior knowledge of forensic medicine or medicine. So I have to try and convey complex medical detail, but in a way that a member of the general public can understand, but also without being condescending. Uh, And that can be quite difficult to achieve (laughs) at times. Yeah,
0: but that's quite a hard balance to... Yeah,
1: but it it is interesting to do it. uh, And it's very satisfying when you realise that the jury are understanding the subtleties of what, you're conveying to them it is nice to know that whatever their decision they at least understand what the medicine and the pathology is
0: what was your relationship like with police officers for the most part did you ever have circumstances where they think oh i know what the cause of death is i just need it to confirm it and you're saying actually i need to go through the full process here did you find any concerns with regards to some police officers being more militant than others?
1: no I, I, I. even in highly contentious cases i i what what they were like out of my company, of course, I simply can't say but i've i i've always found the people that i've worked with very willing to understand they they have an appreciation for the job that i'm trying to do uh, and have never sort of said, "Oh, come on, doc, you know he's been stabbed ten times, of course, the cause of death is his yeah. stab wounds uh, you know because generally speaking. They know that I'm the job I'm doing is a bit more complicated than simply counting holes or counting bruises, and they know that eventually they're going to have to rely on my evidence uh, when we get to court. So I would have to say that you know some police officers are brighter than others, some are more chatty than others. You know they they're, they're human beings um, after all, but I've never had a, a real difficulty with someone saying, oh, come on, doc, just get on with it. Uh, If that's what they've been thinking, (laughs) they wouldn't dare say it to my face, I think is probably the truth.
0: (laughs) And I understand you had some involvement in the Princess Diana trial, which is obviously a very, very well-known case. What was your involvement with that one?
1: A colleague of mine was the pathologist on call the weekend that the accident happened in Paris. Uh, And Dodie and Diana were brought back to England and he performed their post-mortem examinations and established the cause of death. Sometime later, uh, a few years later, when the the, the rumours and the conspiracy theories wouldn't go away and continued not to go away, and in fact were gaining sort of credence in some areas, John Stevens, later Lord Stevens, who was the then Commissioner of the Metropolitan Police, uh, was asked or decided to set up a complete re-examination of the death and the accident in the Alma Tunnel. Uh, And I was asked to be, because I'd had no prior involvement, I was asked to be the expert forensic pathology advisor to this investigation. And that was a, a fascinating time watching a really high-powered, skilled set of detectives go about examining the minutiae, really the tiny, tiny minutiae of this death, and my evidence related to the car, the incident, uh, and the death of both Dodie and Diana, and trying to understand uh, what had happened uh, with that. But that's coming in, looking at photographs, looking at documents. Going and examining things uh going over to Paris and talking to the pathologist who performed the first post mortem on uh, a man called Henri Paul, who was the driver of the vehicle but had also examined uh, Princess Diana in hospital after she died and expressed some views there
0: and I understand you had some involvement regarding the nine eleven case as well
1: yeah, yes, yes, it was busy times mm. uh yeah the nine eleven was uh, such a moment. You know, once again, I find when I'm lecturing now, I, I talk to <laughs> medical students and say, of course, there was 9 11 uh, and 2001. And I look around the room and realize that most of them weren't born in 2000- <laughs> 2001. That is depressing. And although they've, you know, vaguely heard of this event occurring in a bit like Hungerford, you know, th- th- for me, Absolutely seismic events that shockwaves traveled up and down the country. 9 11, the shockwaves traveled round and round the world. And yet they look a bit blank and go, oh, yes, it was a bit of a terrorist act. It was the most phenomenal terrorist action. You know, wh- whatever one thinks, there was a, you know, to plan that, to put it together required some incredible planning. And 3,000 people died. So I can't admire the planning. However, it was quite spectacular, and it was meant to be. And because when English citizens die abroad and their bodies are returned to the United Kingdom for burial, they have to pass through the coronial system. Uh, And the coroner for West London, a lady called Alison Thompson at that time, and the Metropolitan Police and I were very concerned that, Clearly, there were English fatalities, British fatalities in the two towers in New York. And we really wanted to make sure that any return of uh, bodies to England for burial wasn't held up by legal processes. And so I was sent out to New York to see what was happening, to see what was going on, to see how uh, it was uh, that the process was being performed in New York, uh, the Office of the Medical Examiner in New York. He, he, A medical examiner over there is the same as a sort of part coroner, part forensic pathologist, but they were the guys doing the work. And I have friends all around the world, uh, and lots of my friends were working in New York assisting. Uh, and so I was able to get in, see what was going on, and to advise the coroner, the police, and the government that you know anybody's returned from the medical examiners office in new york if they said it was john smith it was john smith their processes were good accurate and precise and their reports uh, and their comments could be relied on and i think hopefully we eased those passages for the the few British people who were actually identified and returned because although three people have died, about, give or take, about 1,400 people from those events have never been identified. 1,400 people are still unidentified from the crash and the collapse of those buildings. Amazing, distressing uh, situation that those families must still go through, even at 20 something years post event. It's
0: unbelievable. I think it's one of those generational events, especially for my generation, where everyone remembers where they were when the news broke of those attacks. Do you think we should be worried, though, that people who were either too young to remember it or were born just after are almost desensitized now because of the volume of attacks we're seeing on a regular basis? Even the other day, there was the, the guy who shot a load of people in a convenience store in America.
1: In Buffalo, yes, yes, that's right. That was, you know, another spree killing. I mean, in England, I think, whatever one thinks about nanny states, we are so restrictive on the use of guns, which is why so few events shooting fatalities occur in this country and you know i i'm not a shooter and there are possibly people who would disagree with me but you know i every day i thank goodness that you know we have these restrictive laws some of them were brought in post hungerford about rifles that could repeatedly fire some handgun rules were brought in post dunblane which you may remember was when a man entered a junior school in dunblane in scotland and shot dead a large number of children and restrictions on handguns were brought in after that. So we are, we in England, Wales, and Scotland and Ireland live in very safe environment because of those things. But yes, there is a risk of desensitisation. I I think perhaps we all feel it a bit with the war in Ukraine. You know, there is that sensation, if we're not careful, of just another bombing, and it never is for the families. And I've spent my career... Focusing, I hope, significantly, not just on catching the guilty, but also on supporting the families who are innocent in every way in these circumstances, dealing with a tragic death, whether it's a a fall from a building site, or a road traffic accident, or a drug overdose, or whatever. They all need support and care to begin their grieving process.
0: Absolutely. I think the work you've done is. It's incredible. It's amazing. What I would like to ask, though, because it can't be easy doing that, especially with the volume of bodies you've had to look at, what effects mentally has doing your job had on you? Well, until 2016,
1: Stuart, I would have said that I'm a, a, a roughy tufty and I've, you know, I've prepared myself for it and I was, it didn't bother me. I, I did notice that when, whenever, and we, I, they, I've had to deal with a number of mass disasters. when nine eleven, and we had the Marchioness, and we had the Clapham train crash, and you know, I could list a number. But I always noticed in, in those days, I will confess to having been a smoker. But my so my cigarette consumption and my alcohol consumption would blip up for a period of time under the stress and the strain of dealing with those, and then drop down again. And I, I would say I have now stopped smoking, and I wouldn't condone anyone smoking anything in any way shape or form (laughs) quickly i will pass quickly over the possibility of the occasional whiskey and soda but (laughs) until 2016 i i thought that i was pretty immune until a sudden event just my world it was literally like a trapdoor into hades opening beneath my feet and i suddenly had all of the memories of world trade all of the memories of hungerford all of the memories of cases that i dealt with just i just i could no longer keep them contained and I, I fell in an afternoon from from being what i thought was perfectly normal in the morning fell into the, a terrible state of anxiety and depression and needed professional help from my colleagues and support from my family to get through it and i'm, I'm very pleased to say both were available and I took an antidepressant drug for a while and I had some uh, some therapy, talking therapy, with an absolutely wonderful lady who was the most marvellous person. And say, I really was not keen to go to therapy. But when I parked outside her house, I saw that it was called Wits End. And I thought that was a very good name for a therapist. <laughs> and yeah. she was wonderful. And I'm pleased to say it's not not come back. But I am conscious now that, when I look at my colleagues, uh, I say to them, "You know, what are you doing? What, how are you looking after your mental health?" And some of them are roughy tufty. Some of them are being rather more proactive. I'm pleased to say, and being more caring of themselves and their colleagues. So, yes, it did have an effect. Never thought it would, but uh, it did. But I'm very pleased to say that I'm I'm through it now, and uh, life is life is wonderful.
0: I'm glad to hear it. I think we're in a world now, luckily. And it's getting better and better every day where it's okay. You know, they say it's okay to say you're not okay, whatever the terminology is now. People are seeking help now more and more, which is a great thing. And if it builds up and builds up and builds up, it has to come out at some point. And if if you have an outlet that's positive, if you don't, then, you know, it could lead to disaster.
1: Yes. But I think, you know, there, there clearly are some professions, uh, you know, paramedics, police, fire brigade, A&E staff, and I'm sure there are many more. So forgive me if I don't mention everyone, you know, who are exposed to traumatic events that they have to deal with, they have to manage. Uh, And, uh, you know, generally speaking, in those employed professions, uh, they will have the availability of psychological support available to them. And that really is something that if it is there and, you know, people are finding their jobs traumatic, if it's there, go and talk to someone. You know, you never know. You get a free cup of tea and a couple of biscuits. If nothing else, just go and talk to someone because, you know, it it is so important to express your thoughts and feelings in a safe environment. So when did you actually retire? (laughs) Well, (laughs) on the principle that my wife May not listen to this podcast, I'm I would say 2017, she would say, I've never retired. I'm still doing, uh, still writing books. I'm still advising now, mainly the defense, but not always. I'm involved in a couple of management reviews of a couple of mass disasters, some of them many decades ago that are still going on. Families are still very distressed. And once again, I feel. For those families, we need to still look at them again. So I'm still working forensic pathologically uh, less and less. uh, I'm uh, enjoying now my bees and my flying uh, and the sunshine and walking my dogs. So if not quite retired, then reduced.
0: Yeah. What was your transition like from just being a a full-time pathologist to becoming a published author then? Is, Is that something you always wanted to do?
1: Well, I'm not not yes yes and no, if if um Stuart. A number of my predecessors have published books and they've always been along I say a bit rudely, the Ernie Wise form of autobiography. You know, is twenty-five cases what I done. And with no huge link through them, I always wanted to write something that was perhaps a little more introspective about what how I had felt and perhaps how I had processed these things, but what how it had affected me as well and how I felt that uh, other people had been involved. So, you know, when I wrote Unnatural Causes, it was very important that we looked at those aspects of my life too. Uh, and, and I talk in Unnatural Causes about the effect it had on my first marriage. Seven Ages of Death, much the same, looking at... How I managed to deal with deaths at all ages from babies to children to teenagers to adults to older old people looking through those stages of life and how I cope with managing those differences and how but also looking back and saying the human body is a fantastic thing. But it, in our life, it changes and alters, and the bits of it that are going to kill us also change and alter, uh, and how we how we get killed changes and alters. So the seven ages looks looks at that progression. But just moving on and you know, looking at my own mortality now, I'm seventy in a couple of months' time, you know, and three score years and ten is up. Uh, so, hmm, there's a thought to sort of quiet you in the evenings. <laughs>
0: Absolutely. So let's let's transition to your bees. I'm I'm desperate to learn about your bees. How did you get into beekeeping?
1: Well, it was something that I'd always wanted to do. It always fascinated me managing these colonies, these hives, uh, and that retiring gave me that opportunity. So I I joined a local beekeeping association, had some lessons. Uh, and now, as I look out of the window, it's a beautiful uh, May day. I can see the bees whizzing out in and out of the two hives that we've got uh, in the garden just below me. So that they're, they're busy off collecting nectar for me, uh, which hopefully will go into jars later on in the year, and we'll be able to enjoy throughout the winter. It's fascinating. They they are amazing behaviours of these groups. You know, with one queen and the female workers. And the drones, the males who do bugger all, uh, just (laughs) sit around. But on the other hand, when winter comes, they're the first ones that get the chop and get thrown out of the hive uh, to die. So it, it is amazing, these organisms, how they work together, how they survive. It is truly amazing.
0: Do you sell the honey, or do you just use that for personal No, I've, I've,
1: I don't. I, I give it away uh, to friends. Actually, it doesn't I come to think of it, I don't give it away. It seems to disappear from uh. stock <laughs> uh, when friends and family come around. There are there are legal requirements, you know, in terms of labelling or whatever, if you're going to sell it. Uh, okay. And I've to be honest, I've never had enough at the end of friends and family coming to visit me to make it worthwhile. It, it would be nice to to get it, but it's done for enjoyment rather than profit
0: yeah is it quite hard to get into or is it a fairly open entry level
1: no 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 it's it's very easy uh, you know anyone who's interested look up your beekeeping association there's the british beekeeping association they'll give you names and addresses of your uh local branch go along and have their you know I- introductory lessons uh they're usually um beginning of the year sort of February, March time, so that you can get a hive at the start of the beekeeping year, which is March, April, uh, and then follow it through and enjoy the honey at the end of the year. It is rather nice, I have to say, having a honey sandwich in December when it's cold and remembering the sunny days. And as they, I, I can see, hundreds of bees at the minute whizzing around, uh, happy as Larry, diving in and flying out of the hives. It's tremendous. You get many stings. Uh, occasionally, yeah, just, just a few. But I'm afraid, you know, life, life is like that, isn't it? it, it you, is. wouldn't, you wouldn't perhaps appreciate it quite as much if you didn't have the occasional
0: setback and sting. Of course. And you've had your private pilot license since 2004. So the aviation, has it always been something you've had a fascination with?
1: Absolutely. I, I started that actually a long time ago. I, st- I learned to fly when I was still working in and around London. That is just such a marvellous thing to do. Uh, Belonging to a group is not expensive in terms of you know annual annual contributions or hourly rates, and the plane is shared between sort of ten or fifteen people. It it, to take off and to fly in the sky and just be completely free is absolutely tremendous, and it's got me right the way down to uh, nearly into Geneva in switzerland see my relatives who live in france i've flown all over the united kingdom flying up to scotland and down to the south is tremendous down to channel islands it just huge pleasure in the organization in the planning in the doing and in the remembering and it's and absolutely marvelous you know it's a great way of taking your mind off the day-to-day irritations in life
0: any other hobbies?
1: i'm started learning to mend clocks now this is pre-planning because i reckon that i needed a hobby that was a bit practical and a bit thoughtful but one that i could do when my arthritis finally nailed me to a chair (laughs) so i (laughs) so i'm I'm trying to do a a course with the british horological institute but I'm, i'm failing miserably because i'm afraid real work keeps getting in the way but i've got couple of nice grandfather clocks ticking away. I've got clocks ticking in my office uh, and I've just looking, I've just dismantled a very nice looking little carriage clock that's going to be my wife's uh, anniversary present in September. So that's uh, wonderful, great enjoyment, great pleasures, new things to learn, always new things to learn. And I think that's, that's
0: important. Absolutely. Was that kind of a a tip maybe to people not just in forensic pathology, but people who are working and the struggling with the mental side and the needed outlet? I, th- I think it's crucial to have at least one hobby that you can do just to take your mind off. Even watching movies, listening to music, whatever it may be, it's important to have something.
1: Absolutely. You know, I, I I don't play golf, but you know I can I can see that you know the benefits of that you know and just just something just that you can focus on that takes your mind away from the hassles of day-to-day jobs and day-to-day life you know it it is really to lose yourself in it is wonderful
0: cool so i do have some listener questions for you i put a post on social media yesterday and i said does anyone have a question for a forensic pathologist and i got a couple of responses which is well, better nice. than the than zero that i normally get so we've got a couple of questions. The first one, now this apparently is an ex-colleague of yours, someone called Pam. <laughs> yes, hello, Pam. Who you'll probably know. <laughs> yes. Pam has a few questions for you, three, in fact. The first one, who do you think is a good replacement for you in the pathology world?
1: I honestly don't think I can answer that question. I name mean- drop. Uh, no, I mean, I, I'm. I have to say now there are. When I started, we it was a little bit wild westy. Not just Ian West as a colleague, but you know, we 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 were sort of launched off into there. Now they have much more training and a bit more controlled. But you know, there, there are lots, lots, and lots of people who are interested, who are really good, and who know much more than I ever did. So I I I think when you leave a profession like this, I, I think you really shouldn't look back and say, oh, that's not, not how I would have done it. I'd have done yeah. it. You know, uh, you, you, they, these are big boys and girls, great people, nice, nice to spend time with, and I love listening to their stories, but I, I really wouldn't pick any out of the group that are there.
0: So the next question, also from Pam, is, is the next leg of your tour the same as the last one? So I think she went to... Your most recent book came out in September, I yes. believe. You did a tour. Now, she wants to know: Is the next tour you're doing the same as before? Because now it's out in paperback, I guess.
1: Yeah, well, the new book, Seven Ages, yeah. The tour, and the tour is starting on the 12th of October in Stafford, uh, and the details are going to be on my website very soon. Uh, and it's all different. I don't. As you, I'm looking down the list here, we actually get to the West End, the Duchess Theatre. Monday the 31st of October, Halloween, that'll be fun. No, all different theatres, and it's a completely different show this time round. So those that came last time can come and see it again. It'll be twice as exciting this year. (laughs) I I can't tell you, because I can't count quickly enough, but we've got a lot of venues between the 12th of October and the 11th of November. Uh, I do have a day or two off, but we go Burnley, Buxton, Swansea, Birmingham, Dunstable, winchester nottingham bournemouth all the high points and we end at the mercury theater in colchester on friday the 11th of november it'd be great fun i really enjoyed doing the tour last year i was very 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 wary and worried by it but it was i love the audience uh participation and joining in and you know hopefully we talked about a few things that were interesting and we discussed the case and we had, um, it, those of people who came, we had a surprise guest on stage uh, that caused a few gasps. So that was that was fun.
0: Are you coming anywhere near Leeds?
1: Let's have a little look. <laughs> yes. Friday, 14th of October, Leeds Ooh. City Varieties. Although Ooh. that's not quite how it's spelt on the piece of paper <laughs> I'm looking at. Friday, 14th of October in Leeds. So come, come and see us, Stuart. It'd be great, Ooh, great to lovely. meet you.
0: I might have to do that.
1: Yeah, I, I think you really ought to. And bring along a group of about 40 or 50, please. If you.
0: <laughs> I don't think I know that many people. To be <laughs> no, I didn't say you had to know them. I just said bring them along. <laughs> I just bring them. The third and final question from Pam is, she said, what is the best cause of death you've seen? Now let's rephrase that and say the most interesting, the most unique rather oh, than best.
1: Gosh. I don't know. I mean, I think having seen so many, all of them are without hesitation, utterly tragic. But there are some situations possibly where, you know, you go, and what did you expect to happen when you started doing X? And, you know, just, you just, you just wonder why people do very, very, very silly things at times. And so I can't Really think of one that is best or unique. i I know there was a man who was trying to escape London. He was trying to avoid something in London, and he managed to get himself into a gap between buildings. Uh, he fell into it, uh, sort of parkour running, and this was a space that he couldn't get out of, and that was really sad so no i can't can't think of anything anything particular. But just to say that sometimes you wonder what people were on earth thinking about when they decided to go nude swimming in the sea on New Year's Day, in the middle of a storm. It was never going to end well.
0: Yeah. So the second, well, not the second question, but the second questionnaire, as it were, a friend of mine, Lorraine, from another podcast, American Murder Stories, she says which postmortem has stuck with you the most so this could be most memorable the one that's affected you maybe someone that was young perhaps
1: it's i can remember a lot of them actually not not in a, a worrying way and every postmortem is different and every postmortem is special in the sense that they are each one is is and must be and has to be unique and focused i think I, I think the one that sticks with me oddly, and I, I really can't be sure why, is someone who committed suicide by jumping off a, a, a multi-storey car park. Now, why? I mean, in the sense, it's sad. It's not unique. But when we looked in the car park, you could see the footprints through the dirt in the car park. You could see the footprints on the edge of the balcony where they stood and the twist and turn. Of that footprint as they turned round and jumped. And the injuries as they landed were unique and tip different. That, that that's that I, I don't don't know why that stuck with me, but that one that one has. Wow. Not a you know, not a murder, just a really, mm. really, really sad, depressed person. And I guess, you know, having been down the depression line, it also rings a bell with me because there were moments I can remember just jumping back a bit my my mental health nurse who was looking after me you know popping in every day just to see how I was getting on he said you know the the one thing that worries about me about you Richard is that I see a lot of people who talk about killing themselves you know how to do it and I thought oh gosh that's really quite worrying yes that's
0: true yeah wow I've got another question here from Jenny from It's Murder Up It's Murder Up North, should I say, another podcast. The strangest case you've encountered. What might that be? Well, strangest case.
1: I mean, there are lots. Each case can be strange in its own way. And I, I talk about, I have talked about this case, and I talk about it again in The Seven Ages of Death. It's the death of Gareth Williams, the man from GCHQ in London, who was found in a bag in his locked flat in London. Uh, And a lot of people have written a lot of words about it. And I find it completely fascinating um, what went on, why it went on uh, and how it went on. Uh, And that death has challenged me because a lot of people say he's clearly been murdered. Uh, And I stand up and say, no, I don't think so. This is not a murder. This is an accidental death. And thats so that's challenged me, made me think, made me look at my own thoughts, my own skills, my own experiences, and come back to the conclusions that i've I've reached. So he is a tragically fascinating death of a very, very bright young man who did something uh, and died as a result.
0: The next question is from Bobby, a frequent collaborator of mine from Killer Stories Podcast. I think Bobby is a dental hygienist. Uh-huh. Apologies if I've got that wrong, Bobby. I should know. Um, she wants to know how are dental records used to identify bodies?
1: Right. Well, dental records are really important. When we when we have a, an individual, the identification is in doubt. I mean, normally, of course, you, you, we will find a relative who will come in and who will... Visually identify, yeah, that's my dad or my brother or my work colleague or whatever, because they've known them, they've seen them. And and we work on faces, usually, because faces are all individual. They're all different. And that's what we're looking for with fingerprints and with dental records. Uh, So dental records can be used, but they need to be unique. They need to be different. And we need to have that charting that your dentist has done. To show you've had a filling here and the type of filling and when it was done and when there's decay and when there's a gap and when you've had a crown all of these things are different and we're looking for differences in fingerprints uniqueness in teeth you know I've got daughters and I say go and play rugby you know get some teeth knocked out you're going to be 32 perfect teeth for all of you that's no <laughs> no good at all go and do something <laughs> to make them different Uh, They don't, I'm very pleased to say, but uh, it is the differences that we're looking for between you, me and everyone else. And we need the anti-mortem records, the charting from your dentist that we can then link to the teeth that we find in the body. And teeth are great because they last a long time. They're there. And if we have a dental record, we can make a really good positive identification
0: fascinating stuff the final question i've got from a listener is again most of these are just from my podcast friends but this is dawn from scottish murders sort of a above the border sister show of british murders if you will dawn wants to know is there anything you know now that you wish you would have known when you first started in pathology
1: gosh that's a really good question dawn that's i i think the the only thing that i wished i had known when i was younger is the ability to write reports that would keep me, keep me out of the the glare of the defense barrister <laughs> you know so now I think you know as you as you get older and you've experienced difficult cross examinations in court because you have written something that's a bit wishy washy you know i mean words like could and might be mm. you know really can lead you in a difficult case lead you into real Complications, and I've learnt now towards the end of my career, you know, you you try, you you as precise as you can be, but if you start saying might be, you realise that someone is going to question you about it, and possibly quite rightly so. But you realise it; it just comes as a shock sometimes when it first happens, and you go, "Well, I didn't didn't quite mean that," but you know, we're now in a court of law, and challenges along those lines are quite right that they should occur but quite right that you as a forensic pathologist should be ahead of the game and know that they're coming and know how to deal with them.
0: So aside from brutal cross examination is there anything else that surprised you about forensic pathology?
1: No other than it's been the most fantastic career and I'm so lucky to have found a career in my early teenage years to have gone to medical school to have learnt it to have done it to have enjoyed practically every minute of it for very nearly 40 years and to be still enjoying it now and to be challenged by it and to be learning from it. I really do think I'm such, such a lucky person.
0: You've had a great career. Absolutely. And as a reminder to those, Richard's latest book, The Seven Ages of Death is available to purchase now. I'm going to put a link in the description of this episode, if you're interested in buying it. And of course, your tour starts in October. Did you say the 10th it starts? 12th of October, 12th.
1: At Stafford. But all the details will be on uh, my web page very
0: soon, which I'll also link in the episode description really appreciate you coming on richard it 's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you, apart from the website and the tour you 're on some social medias are you on facebook twitter
1: no twitter twitter i don 't do facebook um, but I do tweet tweet away <laughs> not a not a lot i 'm not a I'm not a massive tweeter i 'm afraid I tweet generally during the tours. In the lead up and over the tours about what we're doing, but uh, otherwise, I'm afraid I'm uh, not always not not a massive social media presence. But there's there's certainly stuff going on.
0: Cool. Any final thoughts before we close out? No other
1: Stuart then thank you for inviting me onto your podcast. It's been real fun, uh, a great pleasure talking to you, and I hope that it's given sort of insight to uh you know my my life and and work and as i say i just think i'm a i'm a very very lucky person
0: absolutely it's been a pleasure having you on i uh, really appreciate you putting in the time i think a lot of my listeners including myself will appreciate the insight into the the forensic side and what actually happens because when you're looking into cases it's almost a throwaway sentence to say the postmortem confirmed the cause of death as x and that's all you kind of really get when you're researching a case. So it's nice to actually see the ins and outs behind that one sentence to think, actually, what does go on? How have you come to that conclusion? So I appreciate you being so earnest with me.
1: No, it it's it's you know, a lot of a lot of work can sometimes be summed up in that one. It's never a it's never a throwaway conclusion. It's always the basis of a lot of hard work. When I did it and certainly by my colleagues now, I know that's still still the case
0: cool so that does it for this very special interview episode dr richard shepherd thank you again for coming on and for the rest of you i will see you all next week